Our second reading tonight is from Psalm 73, which you can find on page 612 or follow up on the screens above here. The Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the, most have, does the Most High have knowledge? That is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They, all, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you you place them in slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. It's um, good to be here. It would be good if you could keep your Bible open with you uh, because we're interested in hearing God's Word. We're not interested in hearing Ollie's Word. Uh, So that would be good if you could keep your Bible open. I might thank God for the time we've got and then we'll make a start. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken and we have got the Bible, your Word. We thank you that we can look at it, we can understand it and we can apply it to our lives. So we ask that you'd help us now as we come before your word and come before you to put aside the distractions of last week and of the week ahead and instead to focus on you. Please calm our minds and help us to have the energy to listen. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you to four different people. Four different people. The first one is Brianne Mitchell. So she's a 24-year-old qualified chef. She works 
as a chef, and she was born on Mother's Day, so she's a great gift to her mother. She loves her dogs and loves country music. And next one is the man pictured here. So this is Brian Jennings. And he's pictured there with his daughter, Abby. So Brian is a 41-year-old father of three. He's married and he works as a youth pastor. So he's kind of like a white John. <laughs> and then here we have pictured Holly Boyles on the left, so the shorter one. And then her daughter, Shelby Boyles, pictured in the middle. And then on the end is their father slash husband, Eric. Shelby was a 21-year-old nursing student, while Holly is married to Eric there. Do you want to know what unites these four seemingly different people? All of them were killed by a guy called Ethan Couch. So Ethan was a teenager in America. He stole some liquor, got in his dad's ute, started driving down a highway and crashed, killing all four of those people and injuring another nine people. What punishment do you think he got for the lives of four people? What punishment is possibly worth it? Ten years in jail? Fifteen? Twenty? Life in jail? Imagine if that was your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your friend, your cousin that had got killed. What punishment would you want? What punishment could possibly be fair for the life of your loved one? Do you know what he got? Nothing. He got a probation and a slap on the wrist. He got nothing for the lives of four people. No time in jail, nothing of consequence. How did he get away with it? What defence could possibly get you away with killing four people and getting nothing. Well, his lawyers argued a thing called affluenza. So if you don't, if you're not a law student and you don't know what that means, what affluenza means is they argued because he grew up in such a wealthy family, because he grew up always getting what he wanted, never having someone say no to him, things always going his way, he never learned the difference between good and bad. He never learned the consequences of his actions and therefore you can't hold him to account for that. It's not his fault that he stole alcohol, took a truck and killed four people. What a ridiculous defence. And what a ridiculous judge to agree with that. What a ridiculous judge to give him nothing because he grew up as a wealthy kid. We hear that and we get frustrated. We're angry but we're also saddened. We're both angry and saddened at the injustice of that. How can the lives of four people and the injuries of nine be worth nothing? Where's the justice? Where's the fairness? How can God let this happen? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? Why doesn't he do something? Why is it when we look around the world, wicked people like Ethan seem to get away? They don't seem to be held to account for their actions. Where is the justice? We see it and we hate it. 
And Asaph, the author of our psalm today, is feeling exactly like we're feeling. He looks around and he sees the wicked prospering, the evil people not facing justice. Things going their way. He looks and he's angry. He's voicing, he's feeling exactly what we feel when we see this. The good people suffer while the evil people prosper. And he says, life is not fair. Life is not fair. There's no justice in the world. But although life is not fair, Asaph comes to realise that life is not what it seems. There's more to it than that. And so he ultimately is able to rejoice. That's the structure we see in our psalm. Life is not fair. Life is not what it seems. And so we rejoice. And that's the structure we'll be following today as we explore this question of where is God's justice? Where is the justice in life? And so as we work through it, we see Asaph pointing out the injustices in life, the evils in life. He knows that God's good. He's an Israelite, he's grown up and he knows that God's good. But that information, that God's good, doesn't seem to align with the way the world works. And he sees the injustice of the world and he almost slips. It almost causes him to fall away from God, to slip away from God. Have a look at verses 2 to 3 with me. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's hard when we see injustice, isn't it? It's hard when we see wicked people having an easy life. It can cause us to doubt God's goodness, can't it? We see how easy it is for them and how hard it is for us. And that's what we see as Asaph goes on and describes the wicked people. He describes Ethan Couch in verses 3 to 12. As we look at it, just picture this person. It's quite staggering how good the life is for these wicked people, how good Ethan Couch's life is. It's quite staggering. Have a look with me. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? What are they like? Well, for starters, they're wealthy. They're loaded. They've got more money than we could ever see in a lifetime, than we could ever use. Sports cars, mansions, designer labels, diamonds, gold jewellery, expensive products, anything they desire, they have. They're living the high life. And that's Ethan Couch, isn't it? Money got him off. His wealth got him out of jail. They're also healthy, verse 4. They don't wake up in the morning with a bad back like we do. They don't get indigestion or heartburn. Instead, they're fit, strong, healthy. They don't struggle through life. Whatever health issues we have, they don't. Again, this is Ethan. 
Lots of people were injured in the car crash he was in, yet he, the one that was responsible, is fine. No health issues, no repercussions. He's healthy. Life's also good for them mentally. Verse 5, they don't lie in bed at night with things just ticking over, keeping them awake, thinking about the struggles of life. Ethan has shown no sign of remorse at all. No sign that he's troubled by what he's done. No sign that it's affected him, that he's killed four people, injured nine people and ruined countless people's lives. There's no issues for them mentally. Because life's so good for them, because everything seems to go their way, they flaunt it. Verse 6, they're arrogant. Life is good to them and so they're going to enjoy it. Instead of grieving for his actions, Ethan has continued to live a party lifestyle. He's flaunting his wealth and success and rubbing it in the face of the victims. Verse 7, they're calloused to their actions. They feel no remorse. Again, this is Ethan. It's like Asaph has got a telescope and looked into the future, seen Ethan couch and then done a psalm about him. He shows no remorse for what he's done. And if you dare confront them about it, they'll threaten you. Verse 8, because they think that they're beyond justice. Even God can't give justice to them. They're beyond even God's reach. Verses 9 to 11. And that's Ethan. He did get away with it. No one did touch him. No one did punish him. He was beyond justice. And then it's all summed up in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. That's their lives. That's the life of Ethan Couch. Kill four people, injure nine, and still free of care. Still free to go about daily life. Still wealthy beyond our wildest imagination. Still able to live an easy life, partying and relaxing. The criminal living an easy life while the victims suffer. Life is not fair. We look at that and we despise it. We think that's terrible. How could someone live like that? How can the world work like that? We hate it. But yet, we also find ourselves envying it. Have a look at verses 13 to 15. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Asaph says he's jealous. He looks at the wicked, and he knows they're wicked. He knows they're horrible. He knows they're bad. But he can't help feeling envious. Life seems so good for them. (coughs) I wonder if that's you. I wonder if that's me. Have you ever looked at a wicked person and wished that you had their life? I mean, you know they're wicked. You know they're horrible. But life seems so easy for them. Life seems so good for them to have a life like that. I know that I have. I'm stuck driving around in a car that's sucking down money while he's driving sports cars. I'm living in a small two-bedroom unit while he's living in a mansion. I'm constantly working 
working on essays, sermons, book reviews, languages, just working all the time while he's off partying. How's that fair? How is that fair? Why is his life so much easier than mine? Life is not fair. (coughs) We know that, don't we? We know that life's not fair. We see it all around us every single day. But what do we do about it? What do we do about this unfair life? Well, we shouldn't envy them, that's for sure. Verse 22, Asaph says, if we do, we're like a dumb animal. Instead, we come to God. We come to God and we see things from His perspective. And when we do, we realise that although life is not fair, life is not what it seems. When we try and figure it out ourselves, though, we fail. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. When we try and understand ourselves, we will fail. But when we come before God, when we see things from God's perspective, then we can understand. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. See, without seeing things from God's perspective, we'll never understand. Life will forever seem unfair. But when we see things from God's perspective, then suddenly it all makes sense. Suddenly everything is clear. Although life is not fair, life is not what it seems. Justice will come. What do we think? Do we think the murderer, the pedophile, Ethan Couch, is going to get away with it? We think that God's not going to punish a murderer? Of course not. Justice will come for them. No one will get away with it. They might seem to now. Things might seem easy for them now. But life is not what it seems. Justice and judgment are coming. That's what Asaph realises when he comes to God, but comes before God, when he sees things from God's perspective. The final destiny of the wicked is a fearsome thing. What is that final destiny? Well, we see it in verses 18 to 20. It's judgment and justice. God will hold them to account for what they've done. The language here is meant to inspire terror in us. It's meant to give us fear when we look at it. Think of your worst nightmare. Whatever your worst nightmare is, for me it would be spider-covered cheese. You can ask me about that afterwards if you would like. But think about your worst fear, your worst terror. That is what it's meant to be. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So Asaph uses a few different pictures here to show us a bit what it's like. He says it's like them falling and falling and falling, never able to stand. Imagine falling off a mountainside. You bounce on the way down, bouncing off sharp cliffs, tumbling, 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 eventually smash into the ground. Bones break, organs explode, your brains come leaking out of your head. It's complete destruction, complete annihilation. No longer a fit and healthy person, but instead a mushy pile of goo. It's complete annihilation. 
or it's like being swept away by terrors, by a giant wave that comes and sweeps you out into the ocean where there's sharks and stingrays and jellyfish. Just think Australian oceans, Australian beaches. You're swept out into an Australian ocean where everything is trying to kill you, where you fight against these dangerous animals and eventually you'll sink and drown or you'll be eaten, you'll be destroyed. Or it's like waking up from a nightmare only to find out that it's real. We all know that feeling, don't we, where you sit up at night and your heart's pounding until you realise it was just a dream, just a nightmare and life is okay. That's them, except for them, the nightmare is continuing. It's never ending. They'll forever be waking up in a nightmare. That is God's punishment. That is God's judgment. Gives us pictures, an idea. So obviously the punishment isn't actually falling off a mountain or actually being swept into the ocean or actually waking up from nightmares. Asaph just uses picture language to help us feel the terror, to feel the fear that that inspires. Although life is not fair, life is not what it seems. Things aren't actually as good for the wicked as it might seem. Justice will come. They won't get away with it. Now, this is Harold Shipman. He's one of England's worst mass murderers. He killed at least 15 people that we know of. But what's so horrifying about him is that he was a doctor. And the 15 people he killed were his patients coming to him, relying on him for health, for issues with their health, relying on him for help. And instead, he killed them. He was sentenced to life in jail. But less than four years after he was sentenced to life in jail, he committed suicide. And so everyone was quite angry about this. They felt like that was unfair, like he'd escaped his punishment. They wanted him to spend his life surrounded by other criminals, stuck in a tiny cell all day long with only the basic bare necessities, having to sit there thinking about what he'd done. <coughs> Imagine if that was one of our friends or relatives that he'd killed. We'd want him to have to sit there thinking about it too, wouldn't we? We'd want justice for them. But everyone felt angry and unhappy that he'd escaped having to sit in jail for his whole life. He'd committed suicide. He only spent four years in jail. That's not fair. But when we realise the final destiny of the wicked, when we realise that he went to face justice and judgement from God, when we know and realise that God will hold him account to account for those 15 people's lives, we know that justice will come. We realise that he didn't escape, he didn't get away with it. God held him to account. Imagine the fear when he woke up before God, when he opened his eyes and found himself before God. How desperately he would have wished to get back to his life now. Even a jail cell, even the worst, most scummy jail cell is better than facing judgment before God. But he couldn't, it was too late. And now he had to face justice. Life is not fair. But put, like putting on glasses... When we see things from God's perspective, we realise that life is not what it seems. And so now we rejoice. 
that seems like a strange response to injustices, to rejoice. But that's what Asaph does. He doesn't rejoice in injustice. He doesn't rejoice in suffering or the unfairness of life. But rather, he rejoices in God. He rejoices in a God who will provide justice. Asaph rejoices in God. Firstly, he realises how stupid he was to envy the wicked, to wish that he had their life. He says, as we saw when he says, when he was envious, he was like a dumb animal, verses 21 to 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was, a senseless, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Who wants to be a dumb animal? Do you want to be a dumb animal? I don't. Yet that's what we are when we envy the wicked. Why would we envy those who are set for destruction? Instead, we rejoice in God. We rejoice that God is near us. We rejoice that God's with us, holding our hand, guiding us. Verse 23 to 24. (coughs) Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't seem it, God is there. And so Asaph rejoices and realizes that that's the best gift possible, that's the best thing possible, to have God nearby. Knowing that God is near enables us to cope with the evilness, the wickedness, the seeming injustice that we see all around us. It helps us to cope with the unfairness of life because we know that God won't fail us, God won't let us down. Justice will come. Everything else may fail. Everything else may fade away. Everything else will let us down, but God won't. And that's why Asaph can say that God is all he needs. Verses 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Who cares what the wicked have now? Who cares what they have? Because God is better. God is better than having a perfect body, than having a mansion with smart kids and a beautiful wife or handsome husband. God's better than never getting sick. God's better than getting away with gross injustices. God is better. Why? Because for those close to him, He gives eternal life, eternal relationship with Him, eternal justice. God gives us hope and He enables us to cope with all the wickedness we see around us. We know that His justice is better than anything the wicked might have and so we can rejoice in God. But did you notice the sting in the end of the tale of the psalm? Did you notice it in verse 27? For the whole psalm, it feels like it's just the wicked who will face justice and judgment. Just the Ethan couches of this world. But verse 27 shows us that it's not just who we think of as wicked that will face justice. Instead, it's anyone who is far from God. 
verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. It's not just the wicked people. It's everyone who's far from God. Why? How can that be? That's because we're all wicked. We all do things that are deserving of judgment. We like to think that wickedness is out there. Wickedness is away from me. But the truth is, it's inside of me too. I hate people cutting me off in traffic. Yet sometimes I cut other people off too. I hate people pushing in front of me to get onto the train. Yet sometimes I do that to others. I hate people exploiting me at work and using me for their own selfish gain. Yet I've done that to others. I hate people excluding me and making me feel worthless. Yet I've excluded others too. (coughs) Wickedness isn't just out there. It's in here as well. We've all done wicked things. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. And so we should all face God's judgment, God's justice. So how do we avoid it? How do we come near to God? It's through Jesus. Jesus takes the penalty I deserve for my wickedness so that now I can come near to God. I can be with God. I can have God holding my hand. And that's ultimately why everything will be okay. It's not just okay because Asaph says it's okay. It's not just okay because the wicked people will face judgment, although that is good. It's okay because I no longer have my judgment hanging over my head. That's why I can endure. I can endure because I know God is good and God is just and because I know Jesus. Because Jesus has brought me close to God. Life will continue to be unfair, but we don't live in hopelessness. We don't live in despair. We can endure because we know that life is not what it seems and because we know Jesus. And so how joyfully we can echo the words of Asaph in verse 28. It is indeed good to be near God. God is indeed our refuge. What a God to rejoice in. Our world is filled with people like Ethan Couch succeeding, seeming to avoid justice, having life good. Life is not fair. So what do we do when injustice is all around us? We're saddened by it, but we know that justice is coming, that this life is not what it seems, that God will make it right. What do I do when someone hits my car and drives off without leaving a note? I know that God will make things right. What do I do when someone exploits me at work and takes all of, my cre- all of the credit for my hard work? I know that God will make things right. What do I do when I lose my job because of the money hungriness of the executives at the top? I know that God will make things right. What do I do when I see stories like Ethan Couch? I know that God will make things right. Justice is coming. It may not seem like it at the moment, but it is coming. Life is hard, but God is good. 
I'm going to pray that God would help us remember that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that although life seems unfair, although the wicked seem to prosper and seem to get away with it, they seem to have life so easy. We thank you that that is not the case, that justice is coming, (coughs) that judgment will come, that they will face you for their wickedness. And we thank you that you have given us a way to avoid having to pay for our own wickedness. We thank you that you've shown both justice and mercy at the same time. And so we thank you for Jesus. We ask that you'd comfort us when we face wickedness, that we wouldn't be overwhelmed by it, that we wouldn't be swamped by it, but instead would remember what's coming, that would see things from your perspective. And we ask that that would comfort us in tough times, that you would comfort us when things seem unfair. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.